our trip today will be a trip of remembrance. When that language comes out, land's going to respond. This water's going to respond. Hello and welcome to Land Water Justice, Wallawa Valley, Episode 2, A Violent Occupation. Deepening resonance at Deep Creek, and a spider walks the moss rock. Listen to her song. Breathing at each splash, rock spurting into atmosphere, fallen syringa bush, the lilac finch branch, the brick building rocks from Remembrance Chinese Cove. An intersection here of petroglyph, prickly pear cacti and strewn trails, and here is where the bones are still washing themselves off, watching a dead leaf fall on a damp stone, then water on water. Procreation of sound, deepening thought, Remembrance Chinese Cove. That was Where Deep Creek Rings Wider Than the River by Michael Wasson. This poem was shared with us when we visited the site of a massacre of 34 Chinese miners in Hell's Canyon. Michael Wasson is a Nez Perce person and a former student of our guide up the river. One of the groups of people that came to be an important factor in the new settlement of the Wallawa country were Chinese miners, largely from the Canton province of China. Chinese immigrants came to the Western United States for a lot of reasons, but mostly to do the work that Euro-Americans refused to do, largely the most dangerous or menial tasks that settler society left for immigrants that they considered to be lesser than themselves. A group of Chinese miners from the Canton province were traveling up the Snake River. They were essentially sieving the river for any extra gold that white miners had left behind. Uh, Euro-American miners tended to come in, take the most obvious veins, get the most amount of gold they could, and then abandon the claim once the easy work was done. Chinese miners came in after and worked the leftovers, the tailings, and trying to sift through and find all the gold that still remained. It was more difficult work, but many were able to make a living and send money back home. Most of the Chinese miners that came to this region did so with the understanding that they were eventually going to leave, though it should be noted many did not, either because they were forced to remain or died on American soil. The story we have today is about a group of 34 Chinese miners who were killed in Hell's Canyon by residents of Willowa Valley. It's unknown exactly who did the killing, but it is believed to have been under the direction of a man named Evans, who led a gang of rustlers in the area. No one knows for sure exactly why the Evans gang killed the 34 Chinese miners. Some say it was for gold. Some of the gang members claimed it was because the Chinese didn't lend them their boats to cross the Snake River. But it should be noted that anti-Chinese sentiment was rampant at the time. The Chinese Exclusion Act had already been passed, and hatred towards Chinese people for taking American jobs was high. There has not yet been justice served, and it is hard to say whether justice can be served for these 34 Chinese miners. We have Nana and El here, who are our field correspondents, and they're here to talk about the Chinese massacre and the implications of this story. Nana and El, would you like to introduce yourselves? 
Hi, my name is Nana, and I'm a rising junior at Whitman College, and I'm an international student from Japan. Hi, my name is Elle. I'm a rising sophomore at Whitman College, and I am from upstate New York. So on June 9th, we took a jet boat trip up the Snake River to the site where the massacre occurred. We had Patricia Keith from Lewis Clark State College of Idaho as a guide who was involved in the remembrance ceremony of the 34 lives taken in the massacre. What was that commemorating ceremony? It was, as far as I can remember from Patricia's description, it was bringing this stone engraved not just in English, but in the Nez Perce language, as well as the Cantonese language, that states that around 30 or more miners were killed at that state. And then the Nez Perce people actually conducted this spiritual ceremony to honor the spirits of those who were murdered at the site. Now we're hearing from Patricia Keith. Horace Axtell was the elder of the tribe at that time. He was not well enough to come up, but his son Charles Axtell came. A Taoist priest came up to uh, officiate at the ceremony. One of the first things that Imam did was to go to Charles Axtell and most politely and most solemnly ask for permission to the person whose homeland this is to do this ceremony here. So I think the first thing that I thought a lot after this trip was about this complex status of the immigrants within this history of Wallowa County, how they are nevertheless exercising this extraction of land while they are still facing this exclusion from the narratives and the history of Wallowa County. What do you think about this, Elle? Yeah, I agree. Um, I was definitely struck by this complex relationship that immigrants have in this country. I thought a lot about one of the readings that we encountered before beginning the field portion of this trip by Tia Miles, Black Lives and the Settler Nation Divide. Miles talks a lot about immigrants being ambiguous settlers. What do you mean by ambiguous settlers? Do you want to explain that? So people who are engaging in the colonial project but aren't really benefiting from it in the same ways. She talks a lot about the complex relationship of enslaved peoples who were brought here against their will, and also people like the Chinese miners who were coming here to help their families uh, get financial gain and work the land, but were also treated much differently from the white inhabitants and who reaped far less rewards were given inferior jobs and were treated with discrimination, um, but who nevertheless contributed to the desecration of the environment and to the displacement of Native peoples. Yeah, I think the struggle that I'm having with this story or with any of the immigrants' story is that even though they're excluded from these narratives, even though the diversity is lost, there's a still gap between how the indigenous communities interacted with the land and how the immigrants, like the Chinese miners, interacted with the land and how they were 
exploiting rather than living in this reciprocal relationship with the land. But nevertheless, I think it is truly important to remember exclusion that took place on this site and how the remembering leads to this honoring of the past and moving on to the future where we can recognize more diversity in the land. What do you think of that, Elle? Yeah, that reminds me of something Patricia actually said to us when we were starting out on the trip. You folks have read Greg Noakes' book, Massacred for Gold. You know that story. I'm not going to be retelling that story. Uh, our trip today uh, will be a trip of remembrance in many ways. When Patricia called this a trip of remembrance, I thought that that was a really important distinction to make. Patricia made it clear that the purpose of our sojourn was not to recapitulate a folk tale of murder, but rather to remember the lives of the victims. Obviously, acknowledgement is the smallest part of justice and reconciliation, but it's still an imperative first step and if we don't take steps to acknowledge this traumatic past and the complexity of immigrant stories and of native stories in this country, then we're complicit in perpetuating this injustice and perpetuating a forgetting of these uncomfortable histories. Yeah, and I remember that many of the tribe members that we talked to strongly asked for federal recognition, which ties into this act of remembering and recognizing the past. Yeah, the story of the Chinese miners is definitely part of a much longer narrative of discrimination in this country that continues to the present day, as we've seen with the upsurge of Asian American hate crimes in the past few years, as well as the uh, legal abuse, racial profiling, and assault on rights that Mexican and South and Central Americans have endured, whether that's being given jobs that have been seen as undesirable or inferior. People of color in this country have a much more complex relationship, and it's usually been a more intimate relationship with the land that has been part of the colonial narrative, but a much different experience. Yeah, I find that interesting how different communities have completely different interactions with the same same physical land yeah and we've talked a lot about how um, people of color have been exploited but also how much the story of the united states and especially the western united states has been romanticized and has promoted the idea of the white pioneer um, conquering this untamed land, but that ignores how much people like the Chinese and African Americans helped build the infrastructure of this country and were treated incredibly poorly and exploited and helped um, build this country but have been largely expunged from the narratives. Yes, and speaking of interaction with land, I particularly found Patricia's interaction with the land interesting throughout the trip. I noticed that how she was using her imagery, her visual imagination, to think about how people in the past must have interacted with the land that she was standing on. 
once you get familiar with this river and the canyon on the either side of it and start to, to feel the place and to listen to the place, you will start, I think, recognizing where people probably lived long, long, long time ago for long, long periods of time. This was one of those places. Can you imagine why you would want to live here with your family, your clan, you have the water, you can look up the hills some days, you can see the elk, you have the fish, camas, lots of food around here. And, believe it or not, routes to the Wallawa Valley. That's um, a really important frame of mind that we have to incorporate, both when we're looking at land, living on land, but also when we're engaging in environmental justice initiatives to really try and position ourselves um, looking backwards at the history of place as well as at the future, um, thinking about those seven generations that um, Roger and a lot of our other interlocutors talked about, um, the way that Patricia was able to really um, immerse herself in the past and think about the way that um, geology and ecology and all of these different natural elements impact our lives and the way that um, land both equalizes us and emphasizes inequalities is really important when we're conducting environmental justice. But this makes me wonder, or this rather makes me broaden my perspective on interacting with the land. Previously, I used to think of environmental justice as just standing in forest and breathing in the nature and just treating nature as it is. But Patricia's interaction allowed me to realize that there's also people involved in the nature that we take for granted. And she allows me to use my imagination, just not just interacting with nature, but recalling how the past might have unfolded on the same exact land that I'm standing on right now. But I also noticed that Roger had an inter interesting interaction with the land as we moved on throughout the tour. Do you remember how the Roger's explanation of the sites differed greatly from the river guides on the boat? Yeah, I do. It was a really stark um, dichotomy between the way that our tour guides were presenting the history versus how Roger was presenting it. Um, even though it was the same land in the same space, even things as fundamental as place names um, were very different and had a much deeper significance to Roger than the meaning that the guides presented us with. All these, all these names that are thrown at you, these are the colonial imprint on this sacred land, okay? So uh, uh, in the Longhouse, we only refer to them in the, the Nimitupu temp. We don't call it uh, Lewiston. That has to be Sabinicum, where the waters meet. Pendleton, Oregon's called Nikiawe, where the birch come out of the creek. We name it after the plants, the animals, and the water, and the rocks. 
Yeah, and the contrast between the two really shows the power of narratives that we've been searching for throughout this trip. How diversifying the narratives that we hear on the same exact land really transforms our experience, not just mentally, but physical experience of the land we live on. But I still have this anxiety of us college students retelling this story of murder that took place on site. I wonder what kind of justice can we really serve? Is telling narrative the only justice we can do? Or do you think there's more to that? Or what do you think the justice we can serve as people who visited this site of murder? Yeah, so that's obviously a really complicated question, and I'm not sure that there is a right answer or really any answer at this point, but I think as Patricia pointed out, remembrance is imperative, and in retelling the story, giving it a voice, um, that's a really important form of justice and one that I'm proud to participate in, but I also struggle with... um, how we're presenting this narrative and whether we're um, emphasizing those voices and amplifying them or if we're imposing our own preconceived notions and our own prejudices and our own thoughts um, over a story that hasn't been told and hasn't been given the proper attention and really lacks closure and justice at all. Um, but, you know, obviously education and, um, giving it a platform is a very crucial and important first step in working towards that justice. Yeah, and I think that ties into what you previously mentioned about the Asian hate crimes and the discriminations against uh, Mexican immigrants, because those forms of injustice perpetuates not just due to the lack of recognition, but it is heavily due to the lack of report on these crimes and discriminations and injustice that were targeted against these marginalized groups. So as much as I am anxious about our role as story retellers of this murder, I also do find it promising that we were able to actually go to the site and think deeply about what it means to engage in the past on a land that was shared by layers and layers of history. So Jaden, do you have any final questions for us? When we visited the site, um, after participating in the ceremony, but before getting back on the boat, Roger stopped us and he talked to us about the spirits of the land. And specifically, he wanted to cleanse us to make sure that we didn't carry anything bad with us away from the place. Not saying that the spirits there were bad, but that they like to attach themselves to people because they're looking for something good. Uh, My question for you two is, how did the spirits of this place, or at least their stories, impact the land and your experience and perception of that land? Oh. Yeah, so throughout this course, we've talked about how land endures trauma alongside and because of its inhabitants. Um, Patricia made a really good comment. She said that rivers hold us together, um, but I also think that memories hold us together. And similarly, when those memories are suppressed or lost, um, 
that can perpetuate even more trauma. Uh, Roger made a really good comment when we were at the memorial ceremony about how even though these stories have been lost or people have actively worked to hide the legacy of this brutal crime, um, the land knows who committed these atrocities. The river knows. And that was a really impactful moment. I remember when we were putting the tobacco in the water at the end of the ceremony, cleansing ourselves of the bad spirits that Roger told us would want to come back with us. When I put my fingers in the water, I just remember thinking that the same water that I was feeling had over a century earlier been the water that washed up the bodies of these Chinese miners. And I could feel the echoes of that trauma and the echoes of those memories reverberating back all these years later. And that was a really spiritual moment for me. And I just remember feeling that I wanted to be part of the solution and I want to be part of bringing justice to this story in whatever way that I can. Yeah, going back to Jaden's question about the spirits, I also found it interesting how spirits, as much as they might already be there, we intentionally recognize or feel those spirits by calling out those names, by going back to the history to recall the past that has been repressed throughout the century. If I didn't learn about the history of the, or the Chinese massacre that took place at that site, if we didn't make that trip to recall the names of those who were lost, I'm not sure if the spirits would actually haunt me. And I'm just wondering if that intentional motive, that intentional strife to to recognize the past actually brings back the spirits so that the spirits can guide us to experience the land completely differently from how we experience the land without recognizing the past. Well, thank you so much, Nana and Elle, for coming in and sharing all this information with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. After learning this history, it's hard for me, at least, to look at Hell's Canyon country and the Wallawa Valley the same. People may have forgotten many of the stories that we've been encountering, but as Roger said, the land has not. The plants have not. The water has not. And in many ways, when I look at these places, it seems like they, they or the spirits that inhabit them demand justice, whatever form that takes. At the end of our trip, we tried to do some small part in justice. We had a remembrance ceremony. We spoke the names we knew and rang a bell for the ones we did not. Che Po. Che Sun. Che Yao. Che Shun. Che Chong. Che Ling. Che Chow. Che Lin Chong. Hong Moon Cao. 
Kong Non Ah Yao Now we will ring the bell for those whose names we do not know. Thank you for listening to Land Water Justice, Wallawa Valley. Tune in next time as we visit the Maxville site, a one-time lumber town that relied upon the labor of black loggers from the South and Midwest in open defiance of Oregon's whites-only exclusion laws.